Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Good, good, man. You throw uh, some shrimp and low country boil out there, and it's like, here we are, right? No, I'm just kidding. Hey, my name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor, and we're so excited that you're here with us today. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, in the Gospel of John called God of the Impossible, and so we're going to be in John 4 this morning. Um, if you want to turn there, we'll get there in just a second, and we're going to start in verse 46. Now, if you don't have our app, I know we've been pushing that pretty hard. We have an awesome app available. You heard about, um, the, actually, the Bible, the Bible, we have the Bible version is in there as well, so you can read. But also in the bottom corner, you can select more and then notes, and you can follow along with our sermon notes that are also in there as well. So if you're a note taker, if, uh, if you are just, if you love fill in the blanks, that's your thing. I have great news for you. There's even a button next to our fill in the blanks that'll pop the word in and you can feel that completion. Um, I know some of you guys, that's important, right? Because you watch those, those ASMR videos where people cut things perfectly and things fit and you're like, wow, this is... This is the good stuff right here. But uh, anyhow, so we have that available for you as well. Um, so, well, let's do this. Let's read John 4, uh, verse 46, and we'll come back in just a minute. But this is what uh, the gospel says. So he, being Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And so Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at the hour of when he began to get better, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to them, your son will live. And he, he himself believed in all of his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So let me tell you a story. I learned uh, the hard way what it means to love your children in ways that other people can't, right? You guys have maybe heard me say, like, I love my kids. I'll, I'll, I'll like yours, right? That's kind of how that'll work. Unless they're just super kids, like maybe I'll love them. I'm not painting myself very well right now. But when I was a new dad, Colin was, I want to say, five or six months old. Um, Lane had just gone back to work. Uh, she was working at an urgent care. So any of you guys who are in the medical field, you probably know you basically go in and you put your phone down and then you are incommunicado until they let you have your phone when you leave. So it's really like 13 plus hours where uh, you are on your own. Now, when we left the hospital with our child in the first place, I remember looking at the people who wheeled my wife down with our new baby and then left. And I remember looking at them being like, y'all know you, what you just did. Like you left a baby with, with me, right? You understand what we're doing here. Like this may be child abuse, the fact that you've just neglected uh, the idea that we are the parents now, but that's what happens. And so... Um, I had Colin, I changed him, I put him in his little walker, you know, I'm trying to trying to keep him calm, and he is just screaming, just losing his mind, and and I remember thinking, like, I had nothing left, right, you ever get to that point, you're like, I've poured all of me out, I have no patience left, I have no ability left, 
And this little baby who could do nothing for himself was screaming at the top of his lungs. So I did what any new father would do. I cried and played Xbox. And then, um, yeah, no, that's true. And just hopes that he would be quiet, you know, and I was like, he'll fall asleep eventually. And finally, I broke down. And I was in Charleston at the time, so I'm three and a half hours away, and I called my mom, because that's what all 25 or 27-year-old men do. They cry and they call their mom. <clears throat> yeah, parenthood does some stuff to you guys, I'm be honest with you. Um, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm melting down. I feel like life is falling apart. I can't make my baby happy. I have nowhere else to turn. I don't know what to do. And this is a legitimate story. I'm not hyper-spiritualizing. My mom's here. You can ask her. And my mom said, Sean, we're going to pray. You're going to calm down. You're going to be fine. And then we're going to watch, and Colin's going to go to sleep. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll do anything. And so my mom did that. So Colin's screaming at me, you know, just upset about the world, because at six months you got some stuff that you're dealing with, right? And my mom prays, says amen. She's like, Sean, you need to go and just hold your son, and I promise it'll be fine. And I was like, yeah, whatever, Mom. Um, but I believed God a lot in that moment. <laughs> so I grabbed Colin, and, and, it, and he fell asleep after like three and a half hours of screaming. And I remember the moment where he actually fell asleep, and I put him in his crib, or his little crib thing, and he stayed there, and it was quiet. And I'll never forget that moment, because I, as I sat there where it was totally quiet, I thought, man, that's peaceful. Like, this is what answered prayer looks like and sounds like. This, this makes sense. This is much easier because I figured out that I couldn't do it by myself anymore and that everything I tried was wrong. But, man, when the Lord intervenes and answers prayers and the peace that comes, something incredible happens when our faith grows, our ability grows. And that's what we're going to see here in John 4. So let me give you some background into that. Um, how many parents are in here have been to that moment? Anybody, anybody seen that? Yep. It's funny, moms raising their hands and elbowing their husbands at the same time. Told you, this is what I've gone through. So here's what's going on. Jesus is back in Cana where, ooh, sorry. Back in Cana where the water turned to wine. He's gotten some reputation, right? People are starting to know who he is. And as he's coming in, um, after his first miracle, there's this official that comes down. Now, this is where it's important to study and read a little bit about biblical process and context. Because if you just read that, you know, our minds are going to go to, like, somebody in the government, right? Maybe an official, maybe the president, which, you know, we all have different views on that, so we'll just keep that out of here for now. But here's who this guy is. He's not just a lawyer or a senator. He's actually a, a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Gentile at that, not even in God's chosen people. And this guy hears Jesus is going to be around, hears that he's in town, and so he leaves his post to come find Jesus. Now, if we talk about centurions and who these guys are, um, most likely he was working for this guy named Herod Antipas, which is Herod that we read who is jealous of Jesus' grandson, who was a bad dude. Like, it wasn't much nicer than Herod. And so he was, uh, he was a hardened war veteran a bad dude, could break you. He had a, a strong understanding of authority. He actually was so well thought of that he had soldiers under him that if they actually disobeyed him or didn't listen to him, he had the right to kill them, right? I've got a staff, which is awesome. I've got five interns here. 
I don't want to kill them, but, you know, sometimes getting people to do things can be tough. And this guy has the authority, just kidding, interns, I love you guys. This guy has the authority where if someone gives him a look and says, like, hmm, I don't feel like doing that, he could literally just kill them and go to his supervisor and be like, yeah, he didn't want to listen. He didn't do what I commanded him. He did not understand my authority. And they would have gone, okay, that's fine. I get that. And so here's a guy who has a strong understanding of authority. He's an absolute killing machine, a warrior. Basically, if I took my shirt off right now, you'd be like, that's what he looks like probably. Um, it's not, why is everybody laughing, man? No, he, he's a hardened killing machine with complete authority from Rome to rule with an iron fist. Basically, this guy doesn't have to answer to anyone except the people above him, and the people above him don't care enough about the people below him to do anything about it. He has complete authority from Rome to do whatever it is he wants. In fact, these guys would carry, um, the word for it is really big and sounds cool, and I'm not that cool, so I'm not going to say it, but it's basically a hardened vine. It's about three to four feet long, and these centurions would carry it around as a, as a symbol of rank, but also because when you carried that stick around, people knew not to mess with you because you knew how to use it. My, uh, my buddy Nathan, one of our elders here, is a police officer, and he's super cool, and he got his baton a couple months ago, when he was work- or a couple years ago, when he was working at the jail, and... You know, I've always thought like a little stick probably isn't going to be that bad, right? To carry it on your waist. Like it's the, it's the fourth most important weapon, I think. Man, he pulled that thing out and went, Fring! it was this long and it was like a lead pipe and it was terrifying. And I thought, please don't touch me with that. And that's the same kind of picture that these centurions had. They had this hardened vine that they literally would carry around as a piece of authority so that people would know not to mess with them because they could use it at any time they wanted to. There weren't body cams and things then, right? In fact, there was one centurion in the same time zone um, or time context who was famous. His his name, I can't say, but it translates to bring me another one because his favorite thing was to take his hardened uh, vine and break it over soldiers' backs when he was, you know, disciplining them. And so they literally called him bring me another one because he did it so often. But with misplaced authority comes problems, and he was actually killed in a mutiny a few years later. But but that's who this guy was. He he was incredibly powerful. He had immense authority. But what happens here, guys, is he actually seeks out Jesus. And he doesn't just, like, seek out Jesus because he comes in contact. Like, they're at short fields having wings together. And like, oh, there's Jesus. Might as well ask him about my son. He travels almost two full days because he hears that Jesus might be in the same town. Like, imagine that. Imagine you have to walk or maybe by horse, and your answer is that you, the only hope you have to solve your need is a full day and a half away, and you have to drop what you're doing to get there as fast as you can. That, that's what happens here. Like, Jesus is so much greater than the emergency room for us. And the centurion knows that, and so he actually leaves his post and walks to find Jesus. He seeks him out. He's a full day's travel away. And I think there's a really important thing for us as we're going to dive in, I promise. A really important thing for us to realize is that church is the same way. We talk about this all the time, right? 
There's thousands of churches here. You could have literally, you probably passed 20 churches on your way here this morning or more. They're all over the place. But we have this idea that if we build a church and have a good building and have good coffee, that people will come because they'll want to have coffee on Sunday morning at a church. Right? Because people who would rather, or they would rather come here and have coffee and not know anybody than sit at home or go play golf or watch sports on television, go to the lake. And so we think we put up walls and they're, you know, nice enough. They'll be like, hey, I'm going to go to that place. I hear their coffee is moderate to okay. Right? But what changes and what gets people to come to church is when they find out that hope actually lives within the walls of that place. That's the difference here. Like, listen, I've said it a bunch. We can be a church that just does things, right? Like we have service. We have a youth group starting up, which, by the way, it's awesome. Um, We have all these opportunities to do things. But if we're not a place of hope, if we're not a place where people can come and things be different, then we shouldn't be here then this should stay City Hall. Or maybe a nonprofit like a food bank. Like that's what, that's what these walls should be. But even the centurion in this story knows that everything for him, the only hope he has is worth dropping everything and going to where he believes hope is. And I think the church can learn from that. That if we're not a place where hope lives, then we shouldn't be here as a church. Then you shouldn't spend your time here. And you shouldn't give. You shouldn't serve. None of those things should matter. So sticking with verse 46 and 47 as we get to our first point today in the app. And those of you who've been dying to click that little blue check, you're about to have your chance. This is what the word says. So Jesus came again to Canaan in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever been in a moment where your child is like that or someone you love. But I remember about um, two years ago, I think it was two years ago, our daughter, our infant daughter, woke up with 104 fever, non-responsive, barely breathing, incredibly hot. And my wife and I flipped out, didn't know what to do. And so I kind of went into this like training mode because when you're in student ministry, you know, they train you for everything. Like just in case a middle schooler sticks a fork into his ear and pokes his brain, you've got to know what to do. So, so I went in and, and I took her and my wife was freaking out. And I remember I just prayed and like the things that happened, I don't remember having training for, but we just took care of like the Lord medicine that. But I remember the fear that we felt when we had no control over what was going to happen to our daughter. Like the moment where you've got nothing left. When I was, was I 10 years old, I think? I was 10. My younger brother was 8. Was he 8 in Michigan, Mom? He was 8 years old. And we were crossing a parking lot. And my younger brother pushed my uncle, who was in a wheelchair at the time, across a parking lot. And as he ran back to his parents, a girl and a teenage, or teenage girl in an SUV came through and plowed into my brother. Hit him, age eight, dark at night. And I remember watching my brother lying under the car, my mom at his side, wondering if he was going to live and thinking, like, as his older brother, I'd failed to protect him, even at 10, and there was nothing I could do. Totally out of my reach. And I remember having to just hope he was going to be okay. That's the desperation that this man is at. 
the desperate point where he has nothing left, there's nothing else that can help him, he has to run to Jesus because it's his only hope for his son who's lying dead, almost dead, who he left a day and a half ago. Remember, this guy has been 30 hours waiting and hoping that Jesus would walk by. Well, here's our, our first point today is what happens is this, is that sometimes it takes desperation for people to seek out Jesus. Like, listen, having coffee, having a room that now the air conditioning decided to work in, right? That's not enough for people who are lost, for people who need hope. Maybe you are here because you need hope, because you need a place to dive in and have community and to give God one last chance, and this is where you came. I'm happy you did. But not everybody just is drawn. Church, some of you, it is going to take an absolute point of desperation for you to understand what it is that God wants to do in your life. And the hardship is that, man, we don't want you to get to that point. But for a man like a centurion who had everything he needed, he had to get to a point of desperation in order to seek out Jesus. So, like, what happens when that like, When we have no longer have strength to solve our own problems, where, what happens to you? When, when you acknowledge that you are fully out of control, and you can't do anything. I think maybe, I think it's a human problem, right? Probably even more like Americanized culture problem, where we think if we just try hard enough and if we control enough variables that we can kind of keep the car on the road and eventually it'll get to where we want, right? You guys ever seen that? If you haven't seen that, I'd encourage you to go outside today. Because that's how we live, right? Like we, if we're in control, then we can know where we're going and everything will happen the way we want and what we want is best for us. And we'll be happy. Because if what we have what's best for us, we'll be taken care of. But what about when you don't have the strength to solve the problem? What about when you can't will the problem anymore to victory? What do you do? How do you personally react? I know, like, for me, I've changed a little bit in how I react, but for me, it was like, uh, if I felt like I was drowning, I was going to grab anything I could and try to build a float at the last minute so I can say, see, I'm in control, we're good. No one's drowning today. I know for others, like, we just give up and give in. Like, I can't get out of bed. I'm done. Or maybe for others, we get angry and just absolutely lose it. We get out of control emotionally. But that's what happens when we realize that we can't solve all of our problems on our own, that we're, you're not capable of that. Listen, this official, he had everything on earth he needed. By being a high-end Roman centurion, he had access to money. He had access to the best doctors. He had access to any person he needed that wasn't above him. He could tell to do whatever it is he wanted. He could have had five or a hundred people grab his son and all of his items and carry it to wherever he wanted to go to get good health care. He had everything he needed. He had every means. But what happened is that all the doctors and all the medicines and all the means don't solve the only thing that he needed, which is exactly what Jesus had. The only thing that he needed was what Jesus had. His power. 
Verse 47. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now that sounds a little cold, right? Like You hear that and you're like, wow, Jesus, you can't just heal it and kind of be like, told you so. Everything's great. But here's what's also interesting and what I wish we knew and what I wish we believed and walked in. And it's the second point that we're going to have today is that Jesus isn't scared of your desperate plea for deliverance. Notice when you read that, how many people got in the way of the centurion and Jesus? Nobody. He didn't, the centurion didn't kind of toil back and forth and go like, well, there he is. Should I say something? Or, you know, maybe not. Like, maybe he's way too cool. He's my favorite. Like, he's probably really busy. You know, he's the Lord after all. Might have a few things happening. But he doesn't do that. Because when we're in that desperate moment, Jesus doesn't mind that we come to him. In fact, he says to come to him. But guys, listen, we have to stop being so prideful to think that we can do it by ourselves and that we don't need anybody else. Like We have to stop being so scared that people, when they see you upset or hurting or having a hard time, are going to think less of you. And instead, understand that when you have community around you, those are people who will lift you up and care for you and walk with you. It doesn't need to take you getting desperate to where you're broken down and have nothing left to give for you to finally go, you know what, I do need that. And that's what this guy understands. He, in his desperate moment, seeks Jesus. And he says, listen, my son is about to be dead, and, and I, need you, I need you to do something because I've got nothing left. He's at the point of death. And again, remember, I want to push this so you hear it. He was a day and a half away His son is a day and a half further toward death than when he left. And so in that desperation, he comes to Jesus. See, what happens to us, guys, is that our desperation is where we often find hope in our helplessness. Our desperation is where our attempt to control finally ends. Because when you're desperate and you have nothing left, you have nothing left to give, you have nothing else to sit on, you have no cushion at all, we are ready to relinquish control to someone who can help us and meet us in our need. That's why we have doctors, right? That's why when things go wrong, we call 911 because we need police and we need EMS and first responders because they are trained and ready to handle anything that would come to them and they don't have the personal touch of this is my son Please, I can't, I don't know how to act. I don't know how to carry this through. They have the ability and the training to be able to go, hey, we're going to be okay. Here's what we're going to do. Because in those moments of desperation, that's when we're ready to give up control. That's when our control ends. But when we apply that well at the feet of Jesus, that's when our helplessness is met with hope. And church, sometimes we just need to take God at his word. I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, sometimes we need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Because I think we kind of do this thing where we think he might be who he says he is, right? Or like it's a nice thought as long as we can control everything else. And then we wonder why life is so stinking hard. Like why things are going wrong. Why our children are having a hard day. Or life. 
But sometimes we need to just take God at his word that he says everything is from him and that he is holding it in his hand and he hasn't forgotten you. But so often we say, Jesus, uh, and then my willpower and what I can control will, will yield these great results, what I actually need. But what Jesus says is he says, put your burden on me and I'll carry it for you. Like he, he doesn't say like, hey, drag this as long as you can, hold on to it, and then eventually you'll get to me and I'll be like, yeah, I got the rest of the way. He says, come to me with what it is you're dealing with and having hardship in, give it to me and I will take it. Take it. Not hold you up, take it. But we're not good at doing that. So instead, Jesus asks us to ask him for what we need. In fact, Matthew 7, this is a very famous verse. Jesus says this, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give, you those, give good things to those who ask of him? Like, do we just not believe that? Do we just not believe that? Listen, I know... Every person asks for more money, right? We all pray. We're like, God, I'd love to be able to pay more bills, right? I, listen, people who don't know Jesus ask that, right? It's not a separator. But who's to say that that's not actually a snake if God just loaded you with money? Because, again, it's not what we think we need. It's what God knows we need. And that's the difference. Number three is this, is that Jesus often uses your self-reliance as an example of your actual weakened state. He says that kind of cold statement in verse 48. Read 48 and 49 to you. The official, I'm sorry, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. See, when, when Jesus says that, he's not just being like, great, yeah, I'm going to heal your kid because if I don't, like you're not going to believe it won't matter anyways. That's not what he's saying. He's actually speaking to the crowd of people who are there with him. If you go back and say the original language, the word you is a plural word because he's speaking not just to the one guy, the centurion. He's speaking to all the people who are there. So as Jesus is saying, hey, for the benefit of all of you who will not believe unless I show you what I'm capable of, I'm going to take care of this. Because unless all you guys see what I'm powerful and capable of, you're never going to believe. So he's not just hating on the centurion, saying like, oh, you have little faith. He's saying, I'm going to demonstrate my power so that the greater good can see what I've done. Again, the level of community and togetherness and gathering and testimony is what's so important here. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to do it so your son can be better. He's saying, listen, I'm going to do this for the sake of you, but also the sake of all of them. This is why we want to celebrate things. This is why we want to gather and have small groups and eat delicious shrimp, I hope, and hang out and have fun and communicate and talk and be in community with people because the more that we get together and see what Jesus has done and the ways that he's met us in our need and our adversity and our tiredness and our skepticism and our da-da-da-da-da-da-da, the more we do that, the greater our faith becomes because we see what God is doing in the lives of people around us. And then when that happens, we won't be so scared to go to Jesus with things that are really troubling us because we've already seen him do it for other people. But you know what holds us back from that? 
our pride, our insecurity, our fear, our anger, our resentment, the fact that we can't look across the church and see that person over there because how dare they worship? You know what they're about. But what Jesus does is he uses our self-reliance and your self-reliance as a statement of your weakened state that you are not as strong as you think you are. What he says is that our faith must require more than just a mountaintop experience, guys. Listen, I've been in ministry for like 15 years now. I've seen mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience, right? You go to camp with students. And as you come back, the church is like, oh, tell us about how many people accepted the gospel. Oh, how many baptisms did you have? Oh, give us a great story about the Lord showing up. And those are all good things. But we've ingrained in our culture that we have to have these moments where we're like, God is great. I'm so happy. The Lord is blessing me. And then when it's not so great and we're struggling, we're like, God is great. I'm just, I, you know, I need to take a little time. I just need some me time. Like, I need a break from church for a little while. Like, you know, I, I know I could go, I could go to group, but you know, I don't want, I don't want to say what's going on. People know too much. What Jesus is saying is that our lives, our walks with Jesus can't be just mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop because to get from one mountaintop to the other, you have to go down and experience the valley in between. And that he walks with us in that, guys. Like, he doesn't leave you in that. When life is hard, it's not because Jesus is like, oh, oh, I forgot about them for about three months. Sorry about that. Here, let me pick you back up. That's not what you're called to do. It's not what we're supposed to do. In fact, a, a true walk with Jesus isn't defined by the mountaintop. It's defined by our attitude toward his faithfulness in the valley as well. See, in the moment where the centurion had nothing left, he still saw Jesus. And Guys, how often do we need Jesus after we've just tried really hard, right? Like you've done everything you can to fix a situation. And you're like, I still failed. I guess now I'll pray. Right? If you don't think this is a piece of your theology, I want to kind of step on your toes a little bit here, and I'm with you. How long do you spend looking for your controller for your television before you just pray and ask God to help you? (laughs) Right? I've yelled at, like, my kids, my dogs, people who have been at our house to call them up and be like, you lost my controller. Right? Then you find it in your shoe. Well, let me tell you what that is. That's actually a Mormon theology. That's what that is. It is that I will do everything I can, and then Jesus will pick up the rest, and then I'll be delivered. That's not what Jesus says. Because we've sold people this Christianity that says, if you just stick real hard with Jesus, everything's going to be great. Everything will be perfect. But what Jesus says is that a trial is coming and that when it comes with Jesus, you actually can get through it because you're not doing it alone. That's the joy of following Jesus. That's the joy of why we do what we do. If you're doing this alone, stop. If you're sitting in this church and you're like, I can't wait to get out of here. I'm going to eat and then I'm going to never come back. I'll come back in a month. Stop. Stop. Because I promise you everyone else around you also wants you to stop doing everything on your own. Because you're going to fall apart. You're going you're gonna to falter. But the reality, the true freedom that Jesus offers is that when we follow him, we know the only thing that has any authority over you is Jesus himself. 
Right? Nothing out here has authority over you when Jesus does. Not people, not money, not stuff. None of that matters. But we seem to be okay trusting a safe version of Jesus. But when we get to the fullness of authority of Jesus, we get a little scared. We keep reading verse 50, 51 here. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed him, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and went on his way. Remember a day and a half. As he was going down, the servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live, and he believed in all of his household. Because number four, here's what happens. When Jesus acts, when Jesus moves, his annihilation of the impossible is active. It's not hopeful. Right? When Jesus spoke and said, your son will live, it wasn't like, hey, by the time you get there, he'll probably start getting better. It was in the moment he said that, God acted, miracle happened, his son got better. Like Jesus' statement is immediate. Because God actively works. He actively seeks us out. He is still actively doing things. If God was done and tired and waiting on the earth to eventually fall in and cave on itself or the sun to go out or the ozone layer to explode or whatever's going to happen, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be active. He would just be a creator who sits up there and is like, yeah, we'll see what happens. As he rolls the cosmic dice. But he actively seeks us out. He actively gives us exactly what we need when we need it. He actively cares for us. He is actively moving in your life. But notice this, and we'll get closed up here. Aiden, you can come on up. In the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the father knew that was the hour that Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. And this was now the second sign that, Je that Jesus did when he had come home from Judea to Galilee. And so number five is that you won't always see the result immediately. But that doesn't nullify the miracle. Which is as he was going down. So let's recount this whole thing. The centurion meets Jesus. He says, my son is dying. Please move. Jesus says, your son is being healed. And he goes and spends another day and a half walking back home in hope. So now this guy has spent three days, three days hoping and praying his son to survive. Imagine your child is sick or your friend is sick or your spouse is sick, falling apart. And you're like, hey, I've got to go uh, walk to Charleston. Hang in there until I get back. I'm going to do what I can. And yet that's what this guy did. It says, as he was going down, as he was approaching this day and a half walk back, his servants come and meet him. They say, hey, something happened. He's getting better. Now what's interesting in this is if you go study this, the reason that the, the, reason that the uh, servants came and got him is because they thought there was no need for him to actually continue his journey to Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that nuts? Like, think about that. His servants leave his son's side and go to find their, their boss, right? Because sometime in their journey, the kids started getting better. So, hey, there's no need for you to continue with that endeavor that you're going to. He's good now. And that's why he meets his servants on the road. Isn't that crazy? 
because they saw what happened. They're like, oh, he's better now. So um, I guess that uh, he doesn't have to continue that trip. We can go get him back without realizing that the reason they can go is because Jesus has already healed them because they saw the immediate nature of God's miracle, even though the father was still in waiting. And that happens with us too, guys, is that we forget that. Imagine spending 30 hours plus not knowing outside of Jesus saying it is done if anything has actually changed. I know, I know when I get in those moments myself, it's easy for my, my faith to really falter, my, my doubt to really, really inhabit my heart. And I don't know if that's weird for y'all to hear a pastor say, but I don't, I'm not very good at hiding things anyway, so get used to that. Um, but, but I know that when my life seems to be falling apart, and when I do lose control, there's a lot of time that I spend trying to control things and then going, God, I don't, if you're really here, I'm not so sure. Because here are these variables happening, and that doesn't seem to line up. Things are falling apart. But here's what we learn, and here's what we see, and here's what I want you to carry with you today out of this church. Is that in your desperate plea, in your deepest need, and whatever that is, and you bring it to Jesus, that just because you aren't seeing the actual miracle change happen now doesn't mean that it's not already in order. It doesn't mean that it hasn't or won't happen. It means that the minute that Jesus said that it will occur is the minute that it began occurring and that there is no faltering or wavering in Jesus. He doesn't change his mind. And the minute that Jesus says that son will be well, he moves from death to life the minute it happens. And even though the father isn't there to see it, and still trust it because God does exactly what God does exactly what he says he's going to. One of my favorite verses in Matthew, I forgot to mark it, so I apologize. It's that favorite, I should memorize it, but in Matthew 11, this is what Jesus says about us coming to him and giving us, or giving him our desperate pleas, our deepest needs, our hardest angst, the deepest thing we keep inside of us that we're even scared to share because we're scared, let's just be honest, that if we say it out loud and God doesn't do it exactly as we think he should, then maybe our doubt or our faith would waver or he wouldn't prove as good as he is. You guys follow that with me? Anybody there? You got something deep in here that you're like, ah, this is a worry I have. And if God doesn't show up, I don't want to speak it, then I have to be embarrassed about God not showing up. And yet this is what Jesus says in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So then come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Savior of the world saying this to you and I. Not some spiritual father or a pastor or someone that you love. This is the Savior of the world who is saying, take what it is that is weighing you down and bring it to me and give it to me. Take what I have, which is light and easy and walk with so church, I have two questions as we close and we'll sing one more song before we go eat delicious food. The first is this. 
when you honestly consider what is your desperate plea. Hopefully it's not that like your son is dying at home, right? Because if you're here and that's there, we probably should excuse you to go home. But what is your desperate plea? What is that fear, that one thing you've been holding on to that you're scared to even speak to people around you because you don't want them to know that you're dealing with it? What is that desperate plea that you have? That fear, that thing you've been holding on to. And the second question is this. Do you believe Jesus is powerful enough to move in your your impossibility? Do you believe Jesus is powerful enough to move in the impossibility? If the answer is yes, then church, give it to him. Don't walk out of these doors without handing that to him. Please, I beg you. And the second, it's not yes, it's no. And I want you to consider if he is exactly who he says he is and reevaluate that. And third, if you're not sure, find community, come talk to us. Don't walk alone, and I promise we will walk with you. We are not a church of giving up. If we were, we would have died in an auditorium at Northwest Middle a long time ago. believe he is who he says he is, it's time for you to actually give that up that you're holding on to. We pray and we'll worship just a little more. Thanks for being here this morning. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. God, that you are exactly who you say you are. That not only can we take that to the bank, not only you deliver and have you brought us this far already as a testimony of your goodness, but we know that you are still actively working in us, that you haven't forgotten us, that this isn't over. And so Lord, I pray for our church body as as we get ready to go out and enjoy some community, that even before that moment, that we wouldn't walk out of these doors without the knowledge that you are willing and able and ready to meet us in our impossibilities. God, I know that they exist. I know that we're fearful. I know that there are things that we think are out of our reach, and they are, but they're not out of yours. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow us to give those things to you today, right now before we leave, that we would not carry that burden out of this church, out of this building, and that we would trust you to be exactly who you say you are. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.